study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's the one who preached the sermon originally, and we're just following his thoughts. And I hope we don't digress too much from his thoughts and certainly present everything that's scriptural. We're down to verse 23 in chapter 5. He says, If therefore thou art offering thy gift at the altar, and rememberst there that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave thy gift there at the altar, First, I mean, go thy way. First, be reconciled unto thy brother. Then come and offer thy gift unto God. Then verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly. And the idea here is that two, we'll call them brethren, meet up with one another. And they have an adversity among them, uh, between the two of them. One of them has been uh, done in, has been done wrong, we say. So he says, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art with him in the way. What's going to happen is they're going to have a citizen's arrest if you don't work out a disagreement. Lest happily the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out of that prison till thou hast paid the last farthing or last penny. Now we can see this in its context. But the main thing that we want to notice here in the context, and we'll try to look at the points, is that the Lord is talking about worship. And of course the setting in his day was there was a temple and they were worshiping God of course but according to the direction under the first covenant or the mosaical covenant they took an animal sacrifice there but Jesus is saying God's not going to accept that worship that sacrifice if there's anything wrong with you and another brother before he will accept your worship before your worship will be acceptable by him you have to be on a working arrangement with your brothers or sisters or whoever it might be. So the Lord is talking about giving us a lesson on acceptable worship. There are millions of people throughout this world who are worshiping God today. Millions worshiped Him yesterday and others Friday. And I suppose everybody that went to the place of their worship or their place of worship sort of assume God accepted their worship. But that's not so. And what we're interested in is knowing whether God's accepting our worship. My worship, your worship. We find the word worship 191 times in the Bible. Now there are other words like praise, adoration that mean the same thing, but I'm talking about just the word worship. 100 and 91 times throughout the 66 books of the Bible. 113 times in the Old Testament and 78 times in the New Testament. When Jesus made the statement to the Samaritan woman in John 4 and 21, he laid down three basics for acceptable worship. He said God, did I say 21? I should have said 20, 24. 
God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now it mentions three things or factors that are necessary for acceptable worship. One is God. God is a spirit. Children of Israel had problems with this even uh, through their history. Moses was still up on Mount Sinai, Exodus. And they didn't know what had happened to him. He was up there for 40 days without their knowing it. I mean, knowing what had happened to him. And so his brother Aaron says, everybody bring me your jewelry. And so what did they do? They cast it into a pot and they came up with a two golden calves. And then they said to the Israelites, Oh Israel, here are your gods that brought you out of the house of Egypt. Later on, about 515 years later, when there was a division in the kingdom, Solomon had died, his son Rehoboam had taken over. The ten northern tribes withdrew, they appointed Jeroboam to be the king. And Jeroboam was afraid that people would go back to Jerusalem and be reunited with their southern brethren. So among the changes he made was two golden calves, just like back in the time of Aaron. Put one in Dan, one in Bethel. He said, don't need to go to Jerusalem. Just come and worship. He said, behold, O Israel, your gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Very same expressions. But God, Jesus said, is a spirit. You cannot make God. God is our maker and our creator. We must have the proper standard. We must have the proper frame of mind. And we must have the proper object of worship. And that is God who is a spirit. As to the proper spirit, God is a spirit. Then you must worship him in spirit. You must have the proper frame of mind. The, the right attitude. There must be sincerity and genuineness in one's heart when you worship God. And that's what he means, isn't it? Thou must worship him in spirit and in truth. The right standard. Jesus said in John 17 and 17, Thy word, praying to God, is truth. And if we're to worship God in truth, it's according to his truth and how he wants to be worshipped. It shouldn't seem strange to anybody to realize that God is the object of worship and he ought to have the right to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. And yet so many people think, well, I'll worship him like I want to worship him. I mean, you ought to be appreciative that I want to worship him. But that's not the way it works with God, is it? God is to be worshipped in truth. In other words, if it's according to his word, it will be authorized in the New Testament. Anything that is directed and not authorized by God is by the will of man. And Jesus said in Matthew 15 and 9, that makes it worship. I mean, in vain. In vain do they worship me. Teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men. So it must be according to thy truth, according to thy word. We know there are five expressions authorized in the New Testament. We pray, we sing, we give, we observe the Lord's Supper, we, we exhort one another with lessons from the Bible. Five extra, we can't change any of that and have acceptable worship.
Now, maybe some of us think, well, I'm not all that hot on singing. I'm not all that great on listening to a sermon, but I'm really in for these other things. Well, really, we don't have that choice. I mean, if the Lord wants us to be worshipped, wants to be worshipped in these ways, that, that's the way we have to worship Him. We can't just say it's a multiple choice thing. Three out of five. Two out of five. Four out of five. It's five out of five. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. And those are the expressions of worship we find. We understand that worship is reverential adoration. The worshiper, that's you and I, should feel an unworthiness, uh, our littleness before God. That's why we want to worship Him. He is so great. He is our maker. The word that's rendered worship in uh, Matthew 2 and 8, it says it's an act of worship paid to the Creator. Well, one thing we're talking about worship. It is an act. It's something we do. An act to worship. That is paid to the Creator. He is the object. I mean, I'm not worshiping you and you're not worshiping me. We're together worshiping God, even though we're studying His Word like this. One other thing we need to remember is that, and this is just a review, I'm sure, to everybody. Worship is individual. There are things that we do in unison. We sing in unison, do we not? We, we pray together. But each thing that we do individually is judged and accepted or rejected by God. Maybe we sang four or five songs this morning. I I sang all of them. I just didn't remember to count them. Maybe somebody here didn't sing any of them. Where do you think that was acceptable? You better not. Better not. It's an individual matter. It's not that 99% of the people were singing and makes it okay for everybody. God looks into the heart of each individual. So we must comply with these three objects. We must have the proper object, which is God, proper spirit, proper frame of mind, proper standard, his word. Worship requires preparation. We're going to talk about worship before we get to our text a little bit. It requires preparation. In fact, any worthwhile endeavor requires preparation, does it not? I mean, you men have a job, and I guess most of you women have a job outside the house, and you just didn't pick it up the first day you went to work. Some of you may have gone to school. I'm thinking about a medical profession. Uh, You you don't take a six-month correspondence course and become a medical doctor, do you? Or whatever you want to name it takes endeavor. Any in worthwhile endeavor requires preparation and worship is no exception. We have to prepare ourselves to worship in such a manner that God will accept it. That's the point we're trying to make. Let me make a couple of applications. Surely we should prepare to come before the Creator of the universe in worship. Just thinking about whom we're worshiping should demand that preparation. 
One who stays up late Saturday night, whether it's watching OU in Syracuse or <laughs> that's just a current reference, or a movie or whatever, uh, stays up late Saturday night, is poorly prepared for worship Sunday morning. Think about it. Well, you see people going to sleep. You say, well, I know a lot of folks say I'm just resting my eyes. Well, <laughs> maybe. I would suggest rest your eyes Saturday night. So we'll be more prepared to worship the Lord Sunday morning. Let me say something to the young people. Those of you who are about uh, almost aged to obey the gospel. And you may be old enough. My question is, are you ready? Are you ready? If a person cannot concentrate on the worship, and that includes the singing and the praying and the giving, the Lord's Supper and the sermon, and he's not able to concentrate, then uh, I don't know if he's ready. Maybe old enough, but is he or she ready? That's the question. Well, another point about worship. Not only does it require preparation, but it requires thoughtful participation. And that's sort of what we've just been talking about. Thoughtful participation. It requires concentration. I mean, when we go home from worship, we ought to be worn out instead of all rested. (laughs) We cannot allow other matters to invade our minds during worship. In fact, there is no act of worship. We talked about five acts of worship that we can perform accidentally or without thinking. So during worship, the whole period of worship, we need to avoid a wandering mind. Every act of worship should be a sincere expression of our feeling for God. Every part of the service should become a means of transmitting our adoration, our thanksgiving, our praise, our devotion, our penitence, and our, and our love before the throne of God. Our worship must be orderly. We seem to emphasize that. But it must also be the overflowing of our hearts to God. I mean, is that the way we worship? Is it an overflow of the heart to God in an orderly manner? Well, I think the Bible teaches it ought to be. Another thing about worship, it requires a closeness to God. Because sin separates us from God. We're all familiar with that. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. God is telling us what separates us from God. It's our sins, our iniquity, our transgressions. We want to draw close to God. We need the forgiveness and God's provided means for that forgiveness. Sin unrepented of will keep God from hearing and answering our prayers. You remember David's statement in Psalm 66 and verse 18. If 
I regard iniquity within my heart, the Lord will not hear. Why won't you hear me, Lord? You got iniquity in your heart. We need that forgiveness so that we'll have that relationship. And the Lord's made that preparation so we can have it. We have to take the initiative. You remember when Simon the sorcerer became a Christian, Acts chapter 8. And then immediately he saw, almost immediately I think, when Peter and John laid their hands upon certain disciples and they received special miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, he said, give me that gift so that upon whomsoever I lay my hands, they also may obtain the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what did Peter say? He said, okay. No, he said, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray the Lord that all thy heart might be forgiven thee. First he says you need to repent it, and then you pray. He didn't say pray and then repent. He, he had it in the right order. The order that we need to follow. Worship <clears throat> requires a closeness to God. Worship is a drawing near to God. And so, acceptable worship. Not only drawing near to God, but also living close to God on a continuing basis, day by day. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 1? I'd like to read the first seven verses with you. 1 John, not the gospel. The first epistle. And John here is talking about he and the other apostles knowing Jesus. They handled him, they saw him, they were his witnesses. We're familiar with that role for the apostles. And we, John said, we have fellowship with God and the Father and the Son. And you, the Christians to whom he's writing, have fellowship with us and with God. And when we get to verse 6 and 7, remember that part. Fellowship not just with one another, but he's talking about fellowship with God and with one another. So we start at verse 1. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we beheld and our hands handled, concerning the word of life. Well, that was Jesus, was it not? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God, John 1, 1. Verse 2. And the life was manifested. The life of Jesus was revealed. And we have seen and bear witness. That's what an apostle did, bore witness of Jesus. And declare unto you the life, the eternal life, which was from the Father, and was manifested unto us, revealed unto us. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you also, that ye also may have fellowship with us. Yea, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice, you may have fellowship with us. You Christians can have fellowship with us apostles, and our fellowship is with God and Father. So there's sort of a disciples and disciples, and God, the Father, and the Son. Verse 4. And these things we write that our joy may be made full. Verse 5. And this is a message which we have heard from him, and announce unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now notice carefully verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, he's talking about fellowshipping with God the Father, is he not? Not talking about John here. John's the writer. If we say, 
that we have fellowship with him, that's God, and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. We must have this closeness with God. We cannot walk in darkness. We have to walk in light. And then verse 1, but, now in contrast to that, walking in darkness, verse 7 says, walk in light. But, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now, I think most of the time we're thinking about you and me as disciples, as brothers and sisters, those who compose the Lord's family. And that certainly is included. But I think from the context, it's talking about fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God, uh, God, and then fellowship with them and with one another. Isn't that what he's talking about? In verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and walk in the darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he one with whom we have fellowship, is in the light. We have fellowship one with another. I think that's with God and with you and me. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanseth us from all sins. The point I'm trying to make is that worship requires a closeness to God. And we must maintain that fellowship by walking in the light day in and day out. Because the person who runs with the devil during the week and then thinks that he can worship acceptably on Sunday is mistaken. According to John. According to James. According to other writers of the New Testament. In drawing near to God, we must resist the devil. Isn't that what James 4, 7 and 8 say? Be subject therefore unto God, but resist the devil and he will flee from thee. Draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto thee. And then he says something about your hands. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So if we're going to draw nigh to God, we're going to have to walk in the light. We're going to have to resist the devil. We're not going to be able to walk in the darkness. We're going to have to walk in the light that he's in the light. We're going to have to cleanse our hands as sinners. We're going to have to purify our hearts and keep them pure. Worship requires a closeness to God. So, doesn't James seem to suggest to you, as he does to me, that there are those who attend services, not necessarily in Byron, but wherever. They go through the worshiping activities, and yet they remain a spiritual distance from God. And God doesn't want that. We're to draw nigh unto God. And certainly we do that when we worship Him, or should. Now, let's look a little bit further and, in fact, sort of get back to our text in Matthew 5, 25. Where Jesus speaks about the one who's at the temple, he's brought his sacrifice, and then something happens. He remembers something. He remembers that a brother has ought against him. And the Lord says, what are you going to do? Well, stop what you're doing. Don't go through with that worship. Just leave your gift there at the altar. Go thy way. First, be reconciled unto thy brother, and then, use that word then, and then come and offer thy gift. Is it not a sign, maybe a better word is an indication, that brethren are not right with brethren 
Let me say that again. An indication that brethren are not right with their brethren is seen when they become angry at one congregation and move to another. This isn't an uncommon thing, I'm afraid. Now, it's certainly all right to change congregations. I'm not saying that at all. But there's got to be the proper motive. The principle of being right with brethren in order to be right with God is laid down by this passage, I think also 1 John 4 and 20, where he says that, uh, you know, how we should love one another. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. Now this is the loving Apostle John doing talking, I'm, I'm just reading from him. He is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen cannot love God whom he hath not seen. Jesus and John and James are all telling us that we must have a right relationship with our brethren in order to be right with God. It takes more than that, but we need at least that much. Man is made in God's image. I think we noticed that last time we spoke. And if we hate the man who's made in God's image, how can we love God? That's James 3, 9, and 10. Okay, we're talking about worship. Here's another principle from our text. And that principle is that we are to examine ourselves. Now, we know that Paul taught this in the, concerning the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 and 28, he says, But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so means in this manner. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we're to be examining ourselves. We're to remember Jesus, that's true. But from the very same context, the Lord is teaching that we're not only to remember him, but we're to think, we're to be conscious of our relationship with our brethren. Let a man examine himself. Remember in 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, Paul said there that uh, you need to uh, try yourselves. Search yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, whether you're reprobate. Generally, we enjoy uh, examining our, our next door neighbor better than examining ourselves. That might be human nature. But the point we're trying to make here is the Bible teaches we should examine ourselves when we come to worship God. If there's sin in our lives, we need to get it right. If there's some conflict with a brother or sister, we need to get it right before even we worship the Lord. Remember the parable? We looked at it recently in Luke 18. That Jesus teaches about the two men who came up to the temple to pray. They came up to worship. He tells about the two men. One of them was a Pharisee. Actually, this Pharisee was not examining himself. In fact, Jesus says he was exalting himself. I'm not like other men, you know, I do this and I do that. I don't do this and I don't do that. But the other man, Jesus commended. In fact, he said of that man, he went home, he went back to his house justified rather than the other man. Because the publican, the tax collector, was too ashamed to even look up to heaven. He looked down. He stood at a distance from other people and he said, God, be thou merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. 
Here is an example of a, of a worshiper examining himself and seeking God's reconciliation. Whereas the other man wasn't even thinking about God. This, I think, context plainly teaches that we are to remove any spirit of enmity or absolve any matter of difference that we might have with a brother or sister before, before we make any special effort of worship. In worship, our souls are bared before God because God is the search of hearts. You know, there are different passages that teach that. He searches the hearts of man. Revelation 2.23, 1 Chronicles 28 and 9. And that's a sobering thought, is it not? He knows every thought that I've ever had, that I'm having right now, and what I'm going to have. And when we come to worship, he knows what I'm thinking. And what you're thinking. He is the searcher of hearts. We need to make it a practice of being conscious of our offenses. Like the man in our text. Who when he got there and he remembered his brother had all against him. Because God is conscious of our offenses. And correcting any offenses is essential to acceptable worship. Didn't Jesus say, he didn't put it in these exact words, but he did use the same word. Didn't Jesus say that reconciliation, you know, first be reconciled to thy brother. That reconciliation takes precedence over all other duties, even worshiping God. And that's the scripture we quoted from Matthew 5, 23 and 24. First be ye reconciled. Since a very essence of Christianity is love. See if you'd agree with me on this. God would not or will not allow a heart that is uncharitable, that is revengeful, to approach his throne of grace. We are to then come and offer that gift. After we have made right the wrong or have done all in our power to make reconciliation. Now, sometimes it seems like it's almost impossible to settle differences to everyone's satisfaction. But we must make a consecrated, dedicated effort to do so. Didn't Paul say in Romans 12 and verse 18, If it be possible, as much as in you lieth, be at peace with all men? That's what he wants us to try to do. Let me tell you about a couple of brothers that uh, I knew, Laverne knew, long, long time ago. They mo both of them may be dead now. I, I don't know. One of them was a lumber man, had a lumber business. The other man was a five and ten cent store man. And so he needed some lumber because he was going to remodel, build some new fixtures or whatever in his five and ten. And so he went to the brother and bought the lumber. Had to buy it on credit. I don't know what kind of arrangements. But I know that later on, the five and ten man couldn't or didn't pay his bill. And he was the one who was telling me about it. He said, uh, you know what, uh, brother, and I won't mention his name, what he did, and he was an elder. I don't think they were members of the same congregation, but they knew one another and did business together that way. He said... He turned my account 
over to a collecting agency. He thought that was wrong. And he even quoted 1 Corinthians 6. I mean, when there's differences between brethren, didn't Paul say, why not rather take wrong? Can't you find one wise man to, uh, to work out the differences rather than take this before unbelievers? You know, take it to court before those who are still in the world? So this brother who had uh, not been able to pay his bill thought that the other fellow shouldn't have pressed charges or shouldn't have turned it over to the collecting agency. I'm not trying to take sides. I'm just saying that they both had their point of view. And I'd like to think that finally the bill was settled and everything worked out. I just don't know. But I'm just giving you an example of what happens sometimes, and I imagine many times something like it, between brethren. Good relationships. But sometimes, sometimes something happens in business. And uh, one's not able to do his duty or what he promises to do. Well, surely there's some way they could work it out. Let me close with four thoughts from our lesson this morning. One, our personal wrong may keep our worship from being acceptable to God. If I have offended somebody and I just let it go and I don't try to straighten it out, I don't try even, you think God's going to accept my worship? I don't think so. Second thought. On the other hand, the other person's wrong, somebody offends me, should not void my worship. If I don't have a, uh, how do they put that, uh, sort of a, an attitude uh, problem, adjustment problem. You know, if, if I can just go ahead and worship God and don't let what other, somebody else has done bother me, then it shouldn't bother my worship. Three, the Bible teaches that both the offender and the offended have a responsibility of working out and coming back into reconciliation. In our text in Matthew 5, 24, 23 and 24, he's talking about the one who remembers somebody, he's done something to somebody else. The Lord says, before you finish worshiping, you go and correct that. So the offender has a responsibility. And that's also taught in Luke 17 and 4. You turn to Matthew 18, and in that same chapter, both of these points, I think, are taught. The offender has to go, the offended has to go, to bring about a reconciliation, to correct any matter that might exist between them. The fourth point is this. If we are so angry with a brother that we cannot worship in his presence, we cannot worship acceptably in his absence. Think about it. Let me just say it again. If we are so angry with a brother that we cannot worship in his presence, we cannot worship acceptably in his absence. We still got that attitude there that needs to be corrected. And if there is a problem between us, the Lord said, first, be reconciled unto your brethren. These are just some ordinary scriptural principles that uh, you've all heard, I'm sure, that I just thought because that's what the next thing in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, we ought to touch on it. If there's someone here who's not obeyed the gospel, you're not only old enough, but you're ready, we would encourage you to do that. There's some reason, as a child of God, you need to come forward. We would do what we could to help. Would you respond as together we stand and sing our invitation song? <laughs>